0: Happy Question Show Day, your questions, my answers. Remember, wherever you are on my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just type it into the comment section of any video, I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them here. Alright, first question. Tommy Vask, supposing one would want to create an internet of the space, how about sending out small communication modules, nodes, CubeSat style, in all directions at regular intervals and at a high enough velocity to escape the solar system so that you create an ever expanding cloud of data relays. I think you're like part of the way there. I've mentioned this in the past that one of the things that's really important for us to have in the future is some kind of space-based infrastructure. So right now, NASA just sent two cubesats with the Insight lander to Mars. Now they don't have the kind of communication system to be able to transmit directly back to Earth. They don't need to. They can use the communications infrastructure that's at Mars to be able to send their signals back. So. Now that there are more and more spacecraft there, you know, there's the reconnaissance orbiter and there's the, the Mars Express and there's other you know curiosities on the ground, they're gonna be able to to relay messages back to Earth. And so you could send tons of little CubeSats to Mars. Imagine if we had the same thing at Jupiter, and we had the same thing at Saturn. Out into the Kuiper Belt, you can imagine this future where uh, you can send tiny spacecraft. All they have to be able to do is send a relay. Now you're talking about sending these small spacecraft out of the solar system in all directions, and you know we wouldn't have any real reason to use that unless we were trying to get signals back from some distant star. And in that case, you could send, say, a chain of spacecraft one after the other, and they could relay the information back from some other star. But you know if you're imagining this sort of sphere of spacecraft that we're sending out that's going to get really expensive really quickly if you're going to try and have them be able to communicate. So, I think infrastructure is really important. And I can imagine some future where we've got communication spacecraft positioned at various Lagrange points across the solar system and orbiting different worlds and and then they can handle the job of sending communications back. I mean, like for example, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft when it was out at Pluto, could only transmit signals back to Earth at 1 kilobit per second. which And it was it then to capture that with a 70 meter telescope here on Earth. And now that it's out at Ultima Thule, uh, it's even slower. And so the limitation on a spacecraft like that is actually the size of the transmitter. So let's get more infrastructure across the Solar System and then we can bring down the size of the spacecraft that we're going to send out to explore and eventually to colonize the space station to colonize the solar system. Trelane Ultima. If a microbe managed to sneak on board a Mars probe and survive the trip to Mars surface, and if those microbes continued to survive on Mars and evolve to better adapt to Mars, would those microbes be considered native Martian life? Surely soon as they'd evolved to something no longer found on Earth and they are no longer an Earth organism. Here on Earth, we can trace all life back to a common ancestor. And so everything is related. Me with the trees, with the mosquitoes, we're all connected. And so if we were able to actually send microbes over to Mars and they were able to get a foothold, we would still be connected to them and and you would expect them to evolve over multiple generations and microbes evolve pretty quickly you know within our human lifetime we could see dramatic changes to what microbes are capable of and you would expect them to evolve and continue on from there would they be better adapted to mars in the beginning than say if there was native life forms we don't know uh, probably not because they didn't evolve there even though earth microbes have evolved some pretty inhospitable places and so they can survive in a lot of really crazy places who knows what's going on on mars so these are the kinds of experiments that we just we just don't know what's going to happen and we don't know how quickly it would change but i think you would always say okay now we have a common ancestor with the life that's on mars to here on earth and we're we're family Vito genovisi thinking far ahead here but where will we go after colonizing Mars? There's no other feasible location in the solar system, and we won't have the technology to leave it, certainly not for reaching another star system. Surely it's a problem to think about, because once we get going to Mars, it'll be colonized quite quickly, not least because it's smaller than Earth. Mars is a lot smaller than Earth. It's about a third the size of Earth. But because Mars doesn't have any oceans on it, the amount of surface area on Mars is about the same amount as the surface area on Earth. And so I guess that's kind of like saying we're going to eventually run out of space on Earth, which we haven't, even though we're at 8 billion people. And it's probably going to be thousands of years before there's a significant population on Mars. So I wouldn't get too worried about us running out of space on Mars and needing to colonize somewhere else. And I think the future of human colonization in the solar system is going to be in orbit itself. We're going to build O'Neill rings, we're going to build orbital structures in space, and survive that way, where you've got free power, as much as you need, and you build ways to prevent against the radiation and things like that. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, but it's good to think ahead. Omega Tachi. Hey Fraser, wouldn't it be better to just launch a space telescope to the orbit of Uranus or Saturn to have a better image of Sedna and maybe find Planet Nine? Sending a space telescope. To another world is really only good for studying that world. So if we send a space telescope to Uranus, it will be like you know the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is has on board the largest, most powerful telescope and camera system that's ever been launched to another planet, and its job is to observe Mars at greater resolution than any spacecraft that's ever done it before. It can see objects as small as I forget, 20 centimeters across, like really small objects on Mars can be seen. Now remember, if you put a telescope to Uranus, it's going to sometimes be closer to Sedna and other objects out in the Kuiper Belt, and then other times it's going to be even farther because it's going to be completely across the solar system than Earth is. So the best place for us to put space telescopes is in low Earth orbit, in lunar orbit, at the Lagrange points. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why you might want to send a, a telescope out to say 550-1000 oh, to 1, astronomical units away from the Sun, so you could use the Sun as a gravitational lens, which we'll talk about later on in this question show. Uh, but really, to go to a place like Saturn, Neptune, you want to send a telescope there so you can study that specific world. Mark Wright. I guess no one at NASA thought it was a good idea to attach a leaf blower to the rover pointed at the solar panel or a robotic broom arm. The problem with Mars is that it's got one one hundredth the atmosphere of Earth. So in order to blow wind, you would have to be able to essentially generate a wind using that incredibly low air pressure, which means that you'd have to create a fairly significant pump system that would be able to compress air and then blast it at the at the solar panels, and that was weight, you know, they were right at the maximum amount of weight that can be brought to Mars in that really cool airbag system that they used for spirit and opportunity. Uh, Same thing with, and so the problem with a robotic broom, for example, Is that actually the dust on Mars is very clingy? It's very sort of electrostatically charged, and so it it resists being swept away. And it turns out, you know, we've talked about this in the past that there have been these cleaning events that have happened on the rovers, and it has to do something with sort of the electrical field that's around them and the sort of them getting less charged, and then winds being able to blow off these particles. One idea from uh, Ethan Siegel, which I really like, he wrote an article, which I'll link in the show notes, how Spirit and Opportunity could have run f- practically forever with this one simple improvement. And Ethan's idea is that you essentially put the panels on some kind of way to tilt them up. And so you'd every now and then you would tilt the panels up so that they would be vertical, and then some of the dust would fall off, and then if you could somehow sort of cancel this electrostatic charge, then maybe that would get rid of the rest of it. And then the rovers would bring their panels down, and then they'd keep going. I think that's a really clever idea for it. So that's the problem with Mars. It's not Earth. It's got different challenges, and this is the kind of thing that that scientists and NASA are learning. Are learning. SACWIST, why indulge these flat-Earther and conspiracy theorists? Just let them stay in their persistent stupidity. I don't know if I'm indulging the Flat Earthers, I'm kind of indulging myself. Which is that uh, I'm looking for opportunities and uh, excuses to post really cool pictures of the Earth or really cool pictures of spacecraft and things like that. But I've, I've always maintained this position, and I've done this for a long time, that, that whenever somebody talks about some kind of conspiracy theory or something like that, I'm not actually directing my arguments at them. I'm directing my arguments at all the people who are kind of on the fence, who maybe haven't had a really serious grounding in science and and just kind of understand the situation very well yet. And so I'm providing in a very kind of calm, I hope, and very good natured way, uh, sort of and providing evidence for, obviously, you know, that the Earth is round or that there are spacecraft out there and that these are the pictures that were taken by NASA and that yes we landed on the moon and things like that. You don't want to get into an argument directly with these people, but I think there's a lot of people, especially children, who are watching this kind of thing and has kind of gotten into their head and they've got some friend who's a conspiracy theorist. And I think it's worth every now and then in a good natured way just kind of showing a more reasonable approach to what they've heard. I don't think there's any value in being a jerk about it. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of people on the fence and and they're the ones that I'm really trying to convince, is the ones who maybe could be brought, you know, could be easily swayed by conspiracy theory thinking and even turn their backs on science, which kind of makes me sad. So that's why I do it. And I it's fun. And I know many in the audience enjoy it. So that's part of why I do it. Fernanda Baker. Hey Fraser, love this channel. My question is: can astronauts notice the Earth spinning when they're orbiting the planet? If the astronauts were like trying to be really careful, then maybe they could. Now remember that the astronauts are flying on board the International Space Station, for example, at a speed of 28,000 kilometers per hour. So they're going around and around the Earth. It takes them about 90 minutes to go once around the entire planet and return to their starting point. So that's pretty fast. And so, if you're going that quickly, while the Earth takes 24 hours to turn once on its axis. And so, from their perspective, you know, they'll go around the Earth, what is that, 18 times before the Earth has turned once on its axis. And so, I guess if they came back around and they were sort of roughly over the same spot of the Earth and looked at the positions of the stars, they would notice that they're slightly different than they were before. But I don't think they're. Unless they were like trying to navigate their spacecraft and know exactly when to, to re-enter the Earth's orbit, uh, the atmosphere, then maybe they would take a look and try to calculate that. But most of the time, I don't think they notice. Peter Houle, should I bother packing my Frisbee for my upcoming Mars trip? I mean, how would it behave when thrown in that kind of atmosphere? Come to think of it, what other everyday Earth objects should I leave out of my luggage? That is, that is such a good question. And and when it's actually very complicated, and I, I probably am not going to do a very good job of giving you an answer, but I want to sort of set the stage. So a Frisbee kind of acts like a wing, right? And so when you throw it, it's not the distance that you can just throw, it's that it's going, you know, it's it's getting lift from the atmosphere as because of its spinning. Or, I'm not exactly sure how they work. Um, and so I think the farthest that a person has ever been able to throw a Frisbee is like 400 Meters, like one of those Aerobees. So you could throw them really far. On Mars, the thickness of the atmosphere is 1% of what it is on Earth. So you would have to be able to throw the Frisbee a hundred times harder to get the same lift from that much thinner atmosphere. But that said, the gravity on Mars is a third of what it is on Earth. So you could just throw something, th- anything you could throw, you could throw three times farther on Mars than you could on Earth. And like the farthest that a person, a human can throw a baseball is like 135 meters, so you could just throw a baseball 450 meters, which is kind of like about as far as a Frisbee has been thrown. So it's a very complicated question, and, I th- and, and so you would probably be throwing a Frisbee in a ballistic trajectory. It wouldn't be getting any lift whatsoever from the atmosphere, and it would go about three times farther than what you could throw it here on Earth, I think. But please, every, you know, whoever's watching this, uh, you know, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of this actually really fascinating question. And I would love to know other people's ideas, as he asked in the second part of the question, what are some things that you should leave at home and not take to Mars? Intrusive ostrich. Nighttime means we're facing away from the Sun, and since we orbit the Sun, we must be looking out in different directions at different times of the year. We're a long ways out from the center of the Milky Way, so is there a time of year when we're looking towards the galactic core, and an opposite time of year when we're looking away from the core? If this is the case, what time of year should the Milky Way be most visible, from Vancouver Island? Hey, I live on Vancouver Island, and I know where the Milky Way is. So you're absolutely right. The Milky Way is this disk of material. We're sort of halfway from the core to the outer edge of the Milky Way. And so for half of the year, we're looking out to the outer edge of the Milky Way, and for half of the year we're looking in to the core of the Milky Way. And there is absolutely a time of the year when you can see the core of the Milky Way, and that's summertime for the Northern Hemisphere, uh, specifically in the months of say August, you know, July, August, September, and the constellation that you want to be looking for is called Sagittarius. And Sagittarius is really easy to find. Uh, it looks like a teapot. Like I'm not kidding. It just looks like a teapot. And once you learn to recognize it, you will find it every summer. You're like, oh, there's Sagittarius, and the Milky, and that is the core of the Milky Way. And the actual supermassive black hole that's at the heart of the Milky Way is just right in that area. Um, and so it's, it's kind of an amazing thing to think about when you look up into the sky and you see that constellation and you know that the center of the Milky Way is right there. Douglas Williamson. Fraser, thanks to you and your team for all that you do. I live in Jamaica. I would love to have a telescope built here, maybe a partnership with a university. Where can I go? Who can I talk to? What's the next step to make this happen? It's been a dream of mine. Hey Douglas, uh, we talked back and forth a bit in the comments, and I was like, you know, there's observatories everywhere. There's got to be an observatory in Jamaica, and I actually had a really hard time, and I couldn't find one. Now I think in the comments there was an old observatory that the Astronomical Society of Jamaica is trying to get refurbished and brought back online. So that's where I would start, and I gave you the link in the comments. The next step is, you know, if you want like a proper one for a university, something that is, say, a meter or more across. That's a pretty big investment, and uh, you know you're going to have to raise funds to get an observatory built. But you can get smaller telescopes built, or even you can build your own smaller telescope. So there's lots of instructions online. If you can get your hands on the mirror. The rest of the telescope is actually relatively straightforward to build. Some woodworking experience. Um, you know the telescope doesn't need to have all of the 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 sort of the structural elements that you see, you can be done with pipes and and things like that, as long as you've got that mirror position in the right place. And people have built pretty significant telescopes on their own. 20 inch telescopes, 25 inch telescopes, like really big telescopes. Uh, the other thing is there's a great program out of the Netherlands, this company called Stars Shine for Everyone, and they organized to get telescopes into the hands of places who maybe people don't have regular access to a telescope. So do a search for that, Stars Shine for Everyone, I interviewed the, the owners back uh, on the Weekly Space Hangout, so we've got a link to that, but I would recommend that you reach out to them and let them know your situation and maybe they can help you organize getting a telescope sent to you. So good luck and let me know how it works out and if you do get a chance or if you need some more connections, let me know and I will try to help you uh, get a telescope organized for Jamaica. Um, And I'm sure someone who's watching who maybe lives in Jamaica and knows exactly where their local observatory is and, and can help you out, Percy. Regarding the gravitational lensing, could we use another nearby smaller star, like Proxima Centauri? It has about an eighth of our Sun's mass, so the distance to use it would reach far out into interstellar space, maybe close to our Solar System. Alright, so it's the same problem with Jupiter. The, if you want to set that natural gravitational lens spot for the Sun. It's about 550 astronomical units from the sun, but the sun is glaring in the middle of that. So if you go, you want to go a little farther away, maybe a thousand astronomical units, and then you can get sort of the lens act like a gravitational lens around the sun, and then you can you can sort of use that as a telescope. I mentioned Jupiter was a lot farther in the last question show. Turns out it's about 6,000 astronomical units. Proxima Centauri is two hundred and sixty six thousand astronomical units away and it's in between the mass of Jupiter and Earth. So so its gravitational lens is gonna be a lot closer to it than Jupiter's is going to be. So Proxima Centauri isn't gonna work out very well. But here's the thing. Gravitational lensing happens all the time, and it's a way that astronomers are observing the night sky. So it's this this term called gravitational microlensing. What happens is you get a more distant star, and a star passes in front of it, and they line up perfectly from our view here on Earth, and you get, for a moment, the the, the foreground star acts like a natural lens to focus the light from that more distant galaxy and you can make observations, even detect planets. This gets done all the time. The problem is it's not repeatable. So the chance those two stars are going to line up is is only will happen once. And so you have this one moment, they detect these stars lining up, they make a bunch of observations, and then the stars are no longer lined up and and it just goes away. And one of the great things is that amateurs can get involved with a six inch telescope and detect planets. So Look up gravitational microlensing. There's ways, if you have a small telescope and you want to be a part of this, you can volunteer your time. Alright, that's it, another question show done. As always, thanks to everyone who sent in their questions, I love it. Um, If a question pops into your brain, just type it into any one of my videos, I will gather a bunch of them up and I'll answer them here. Uh, For the people who are on my newsletter. I. A couple of shows ago I asked you to come in and pitch in some questions and you did that and I made a special question show just for the newsletter. So that was super fun and I'm gonna keep doing that every now and then as more questions roll in. So if you haven't already, go to universityday.com slash newsletter and sign up to the newsletter and I think you're gonna love it. All right, we'll see you next week.